Can, can you hear this? Oh, yeah. There we go. <laughs> Game on. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm, I'm really hoping this is going to clear up some of my memories of the movie from last night. It's a little fuzzy. listening to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that delivers a thorough but loving autopsy to some of the greatest horror films of our generation. And tonight we are looking at one where it, it might not necessarily be um, the most uh, loving of autopsies. It might be more like, uh, what do you call it when you when you kind of like uh, try to find out what happened to an animal who's dead? It's like a vivisection. I don't know. But uh, we're going to get into it, and it should be fun. Of course, we're talking about Halloween 2 tonight, uh, which was not directed by uh, John Carpenter. It is uh, Rick Rosenthal, and as he put it in the special features to the Blu-ray, a a lot of chefs in the kitchen are responsible for this baby. But hey, you know what? It's a Halloween movie, so we're going to look at it with uh, enthusiasm and attention to detail, as always. I'm John Evans, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. The one and only Michael T. Kuchak and Vikram Wheat, who's not exactly the kind of guy who grows on trees either. How are you, gentlemen? I'm fantastic, John. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not growing on a tree, as you uh, <laughs> as mentioned. And, uh, yeah, I'm actually, I will say, uh, after I think a long time of doing uh, some exceptional horror films, horror films that we knew going in that we had a lot to say about, it's actually kind of a relief to get back to something like what we did with Friday the 13th, where there are, I think there's more fun to be had maybe discussing this, uh, maybe not as many layers, but uh, I- I'm looking forward to not having to discuss the the various cultural layers uh, uh, that w- went on in Halloween 2. It's a necropsy, by the way, which is what you call a uh, animal autopsy. <laughs> Or or an autopsy that you just don't love very much. Uh, I, I, I guess Vic, Vic has gotten sick of the word brilliance. This is a movie that it has its moments. It's still a Halloween movie. It's still got some cool shit in it. So It does. It does. And it also has Lance Guest in it. And he was in Jaws the Revenge, by the way. So. Yes. Oh. And... And he was the lead in the last Starfighter, directed and... by Nick Castle. That's wow. right. Look Nick, at that, Nick Castle, the uh, the shape himself from the original Halloween. 
and oh, he what actually a web we weave. <laughs> yes. Yeah, what a tangled web we weave. But yes. uh... he uh, saw in this film that Lance Guest was so great, and then he's like, "That's got to be Alex in the Last Starfighter." I have no idea what culturally summoned this, but there was that period of time when it was expected that the hero of a sci-fi or a fantasy movie would be kind of the skinny boyish guy with curly hair. And I don't know if Luke Skywalker spawned that, even though he had like flat seventies here, but you know, I mean, I, I'm also kind of looping in a dragon slayer. It's another perfect example that's true. Well, but, uh, there were kind of a lot of permed kind of hairstyles in the 80s. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. kind of a, a thing. Conan the Barbarian scared that off, I think, eventually. <laughs> or no, it was happening at the same time, in fact. I, I yeah, know. Conan was 81. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Conan, who was one of the producers of Halloween 2 but your friend and mine, Dino De Laurentiis? Correct. He was one of and the chefs in the kitchen. Let me tell you, a light went out in this world when we lost Dino. Absolutely. He had one hell of a, a run, that's for sure. Uh, so this film, it, it's one of those films that nobody really is trying to pass off as more than it is. I mean, I, I bought the you know collection of Halloween discs, and the, the, the people say, like to a man, I'm talking about like uh, producer, uh, I believe his name is Erwin uh, Yablons, uh, who is a... Yes, um, he's a guy that I've seen pop up in a lot of places over the years. Uh, obviously, Halloween is a franchise that he has been associated with almost all the way to actually only part three. So never mind that. But he, was a- <laughs> <laughs> he, had, he had to run with the Halloween films from two all the way to three. <laughs> uh, well, actually one as well as two and three. But- Three full films out of 12 or 15 sure. of them. Yeah. Anyway, he was um, very uh, blunt, shall we say, in his assessment of of this film. And in the kind of interviews with various principals, Rick Rosenthal's um, predecessor on this project was going to be Tommy Lee Wallace, who was going to direct this. He ultimately directs Halloween 3. But when he got the script written, mind you, by his friend John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, uh, he was like, no, I'm, I'm pulling myself out of consideration to direct this film. And part of it was, like, this film is, like, we have to look at, in history, on the timeline where this sequel falls. Like, obviously, Halloween kicked off the um, slasher genre. But by by the time Halloween 2 rolls around, we, we have Friday the 13th. We have slasher films. And so they're trying to make, a at the time, a more conventional slasher film, which is a more bloody and gory and stupid, for lack of a better word, kind of a film than you could perceive the first one, which was more uh, character-driven and actually you know has a lot of suspense and a lot of, I wouldn't say classical, but... You know, because it, it still feels, you know, modern in a lot of ways. But it, it takes its time. It leaves a lot to the imagination. Whereas in this film, we've got uh, a syringe in the eye and, you know, stuff like that that's more uh, over the top. And he, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, was like, nah, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not impressed with this script. So Rick Rosenthal was kind of a right out of film school, AFI, I believe, kid. And they're like... Uh, he had the same agent as John Carpenter, so that's why he ended up directing this film. There is a 
sense that permeates this entire film, and that sense is, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's <laughs> make a sequel. I read Ebert's review, and he puts his finger directly on that. I think the review starts with something like, oh, how have the money fallen? Uh, you know, it sings the praises of it. That was a horror movie, a thriller, a suspense movie. This one is a splatter movie. I noticed a couple of mentions from Carpenter where uh, he was reacting to the fact that uh, the first movie had spawned this spate of knockoffs, Friday the 13th included, and all of them were kind of upping the ante of gore. And he felt the distinct need to stay relevant. Speaking yeah. of too many cooks in the kitchen, he went and redirected some of the scenes in post-production because they, you know, Rosenthal was trying his best to match the feel of the first movie. And Carpenter was like, no, we have to hit harder. I, I think his exact quote was uh, that the original cut uh, was about as scary as an episode of Quinty. Um, Ouch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, w- whether that's fair or not, because there's a lot of really good direction in this movie. So it's hard to just pick him as the guy to jump up and down on. We still have John Carpenter involved in this film, so it's not going to go too far afield. There's still some cool shit in there, but... I think that there's a lot of reasons that led it to the fact that it's basically a two-star sequel of a four-star movie. I think that's an accurate uh, description of the whole thing. I was just going to say, I um, I worked with Rick Rosenthal on a project. I, we, there was something we kicked around that my agent said, hey, why don't you talk to him about this? And I literally, like, my first reaction was like, Jesus Christ, Rick Rosenthal? Like, don't you, don't you know anybody else? That's and- mean. <laughs> Oh, and well, I know. Well, I'm just saying. Like, think about, think about what, what, where Mike's description of that just ended was. It's a two star sequel to a four star movie. Sure, um, it could have you, been one star. I mean, I think the the picture of his work on this, whether it's accurate or not, is kind of similar to the picture we have of Toby Hooper's work on Poltergeist, right? Like he came in, fucked it up, and then John Carpenter had to come in and save it. Now, whether again, now whether or not that's accurate, and I don't think it is, because again, the guy's been the guy's had an enormous career as a director. I mean, a lot of it in television. But he also did he did Bad Boys with uh, Sean Penn, and I mean a few other things. Like it's you know he's a solid guy. And I actually, I mean, what what I remember uh, revisiting and then kind of going, well, like I sort of want to see where this is headed was uh, Halloween Resurrection, which I don't hate. Obviously, we'll, we'll get to it, but it's not a terrible movie, and it felt like a little bit of redemption for him to come back to the series and, and kind of do something without the... Whether, you know, wherever it fits on a scale of 1 to 10, there's certainly no specter of, like, well, what did Carpenter fix and, like, how bad was it before Carpenter stepped in? That's a That's a Rick Rosenthal movie. He did it. And he's a, so I think he's a, I think he's a fine director. My interactions with him, he was very smart and someone that I, I was uh, uh, happy to work with. Obviously, whatever we, I literally don't remember what we were, what pitch we were kicking around. Whatever it was, obviously didn't come to fruition. But I don't know. It was, uh, he, he seemed a decent fellow and he seemed a good director. And looking at this, I, I agree a lot with your assessment. I think there's a lot of good stuff in here. But what was uh, he, uh, was he up for directing, uh, Devil's Pass 2, Colder Than Hell. Oh, now that's just below the belt. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, let's move on from that's Rick Rosenthal. Actually... <laughs> <laughs> I think, Vic, you've saved yourself. Uh, you dug yourself out of the hole there on your director dissing. 
Just to throw in one sidebar on Rosenthal, if in fact the elements that Carpenter came in and redirected were the the gore elements, the the kills, whatnot, the uh, elements of this movie that impressed me the most were not those. Yes, those are fine. Don't get me wrong, but the scenes where I was like, "Ooh, that's a cool shot," have nothing to do with the deaths. So, if that's Rosenthal's work, then. One of the things that I, I saw was that I believe Carpenter did the add-on stuff in the beginning uh, because they felt that they needed more stuff that felt like the first film. And so that really tacked on kill of the girl, and we'll get to it when we go through this, but um, there's a sort of, hey, and he kills a teenage girl in, in, in a house on the phone, you know, that kind of just pops out of nowhere. And yeah. wasn't particularly good in any any way. Um, like that's the kind of thing that Carpenter came in and did. So, mm. yeah, I definitely wouldn't say you know any good scene in this scene is in this movie is John Carpenter's. In uh, continuing to dig myself out of having said terrible things about Rick Rosenthal, <laughs> <laughs> why do you hate him so much, Vic? Why do you I hate him? So it until this moment, Rick Rosenthal is a consulting producer on Transparent on uh, Amazon. Well, I'm really glad I believe, you brought that up. I, I believe he's also an EP on uh, Would You Be My Neighbor? That's the documentary it. Get Out. No, no. I, I, I looked yeah, up a lot. Yes, he is. No, you're right. He's an EP on Won't You Be My Neighbor. Yep. Holy wow. shit. All right. So, yeah, that's the guy's – even if he's not uh, uh, hitting it out of the part as a director, uh, boy, as a producer, that's those are those are some good credits. By the way, yeah, Dean Cundy so. um, turned down working as the DP on Poltergeist to do this movie out of loyalty to John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. There you go. Yes, the great Dean Cundy, whose cinematography is certainly welcome in this film. One of the elements that makes it feel like uh, a Carpenter film. It does look good. looks cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say my, my favorite moments in this whole movie are watching Michael stalk down these darkened hospital hallways. I think that that's a really cool image. If you take anything, any one thing from this movie, it would be that. Well, it's interesting that conceptually, like apparently the original sequel was Laurie a few years later, and she's living in a high-rise apartment building. So it's Halloween in a high-rise apartment. And then they decided, no, let's, let's do this hospital thing. And it is, to be fair, I mean, when you look at all the Halloween films, like, oh, the hospital one, you know, like, it has an identity in the pantheon. Right. And, uh, you know, Friday the 13th Part 2 gives us an opening along those lines. She's at least on the second floor. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, uh, even though this isn't, you know, one of the uh, shining jewels in the crown of the genre or anything, I do have a warm... Uh, no pun intended, as you'll see, memory of this, which is when I was a kid, the whole idea of the hot tub kill really effed me up. Because I think I actually was like reading the novelization in a bookstore before I'd even seen the film, like when I was like 12, 13. And I'm like in a used bookstore and I would grab the horror paperbacks and flip through them while my mom was looking at books or something in another aisle. And I distinctly remember reading about this poor nurse getting her face, like, boiled. And it messed me up. And even when I saw the film a few handful of years later, like, that was the kill that stuck out stuck out for me. And that's, like, what I always remembered most about this film as the signature kill. And the, 
the, the nastiest somehow. Cause just, you know, getting your face boiled is, is rough. And I always, that by the way, in uh, angel heart, that's, there's something like that. And it freaked me out as well. And watching it the other night, I have to say like, it doesn't, it doesn't pack the same punch at all. I, I don't think of it as being a particularly gruesome or nasty sequence, the way it actually is executed. But in my mind, in my imagination and in my memory, that was seriously rough and it, and it stuck with me. The most interesting thing about that scene is it establishes that not only is Michael Myers bulletproof, but he's also scalding waterproof because mm-hmm. he holds her head under the water with his bare hand and it doesn't hurt him. But that's, I guess that that's, that's one of the upsides of being uh, pure evil. The indestructibility of this guy, a la Jason, is established not five, six movies down the line. He's got to be undead from movie one. The cop who leans over him and checks his pulse, says he's not breathing. Mm, you're right. When he's right. laying on the ground and that dopey marshal uh, just yep. can't leave him alone, <laughs> even though Loomis is like, stay away from him. He's not dead. He's going to murder you. And he checks him and says he is not breathing. And then he gets up anyways. So, Well, this is a good segue to my uh, impression of (laughs) Donald Pleasance. I shot him six times! (laughs) That's not bad. Thank you. (laughs) That's much better than your Maggie Smith, John. (laughs) I'm working on that, Vic. It's going to get better. By the time we do the Downton Abbey podcast, it's going to be on point. Holy shit, I'm so ready for our Downton Abbey podcast. <laughs> In every episode. Are you doing your Donald Pleasance or your Adolf Hitler? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> All right, everybody's a hater. <laughs> <laughs> Including Adolf. <laughs> no, um, he, the point that we're circling here is that uh, at the end of the first movie, Donald Pleasance, uh, Sam Loomis, does in fact shoot the shape six times and this film firmly establishes that he hops right up and it's back to business as usual within seconds of that like there is no limping there is no clutching wounds there's no visible blood which by the way at the end of this film is contradicted um but he he's been shot and he just you know carries on so like any i I think that this film definitively throws out any artifice about, you know, oh, he's just tough or this or that. Like, no, there is no goddamn way that this is a mortal being. Like, he is already in the supernatural realm from the the final sequence of the first movie. Yeah, the, the sequel does pay that off. And, and no one comes right out and says it like, oh, he should be dead, but he's not. He puts five more slugs into him. And then Laurie shoots him in the head twice. He eats two headshots. So 13 bullets are in this guy, plus an explosion he set on fire. Dude still manages to walk around some. So it's very clear that, like a zombie, you have to completely discorporate this guy to get him to stop. Well, he's got blood pouring out of his eye holes of his mask, and he's blind at the end. So her her marksmanship, by the way, is very impressive. Extraordinary (laughs) marksmanship. You know, besides tennis, I guess she's been working on the the, the Olympic U.S. shooting team for the Winter Olympics. (laughs) Well, well, is there, guys, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Is there 
a moment when the supernatural when the supernatural turns. Like so, you when you look at the first movie, you say this is a grounded film about a, a human killer who then sort of at the end disappears, you know, disappears in this weird supernatural twist that works magnificently. And this is part of why the first film is so amazing. But if you take the second one and sort of put these two movies together as a single story, because it's basically what they are. Are we meant to take that Michael has been this supernatural being all along? Like there's no turn, right? Like there's no, there's no twist. There's no moment when Michael becomes something that he was not beforehand, right? A lightning bolt right. doesn't hit like a piece exactly. of metal in his chest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, there's no clear inciting, you know, he is now a zombie. But uh, I think that when we were talking about the first movie, we circled the idea that uh, something drained out of this kid when he was six years old and something got into him in its place. They weren't worried about him when he was a little kid. They weren't, you know, they were, they were comfortable with him running around sight unseen. Uh, and that wouldn't be the case if he was a homicidal maniac at five. You know, so when he was six years old, something happened to him. And from that point forward, apparently an evil spirit resides in this body. And that's why he was such a uh, complacent patient in the mental hospital because, you know, the spirit has just one thing on its mind and that's murder. And it's just going to wait until the body in which it's been inhabiting grows large enough to carry out what it wants to do. Right. The body is just an empty shell. Loomis's dialogue throughout the first film and the second film and hell, all of the films is hitting that point, you know, over and over and over and over, which is I've, you know, I don't know if he says this explicitly, but the, you know, the implication is I've dealt with psychopaths. This is not a psychopath. You know, this is not a mentally ill person. This is evil. There is an absence of a, what we would think of as a soul or a conscience or, you know, even in the sense that a lot of serial killers don't have a conscience. Like he's very clearly saying, using language like the word evil that says there's something uncanny about this, this being. And it, it does like, he's surprised you can see he's surprised and horrified when um michael's body is gone from the grass when he comes out of the stroke of the house at the uh, end of the first film and the beginning of this film but it, it actually kind of fits into his paradigm and he quickly proceeds because this was sort of what he expected on some level all along so, Vic, uh, when you were watching this movie last night, did you start watching it and take it back to the video store a couple of minutes in, thinking that you would? <laughs> I'm glad you didn't ask me uh, what, what my first experience with it was, because I honestly don't <laughs> act like I remember that part, and then I don't remember um, uh, when I actually sat through it the first time. But I, the the thought that I had, John, as you were as you were talking, is that. There's a there's a certain parallel I think between this and Friday the Thirteenth where they're both movies where the the first chapter takes this unusual supernatural turn in the closing seconds, uh, which works I think in both movies even though it takes them out of this grounded realm and into this weird supernatural realm, they both work and are among the best moments in both of those movies, but they put you in this weird spot for the sequel where and we had long discussions about how, you know, was Jason, did he actually not drown and had been just living in the woods for all this time? But then 
why was he covered in seaweed when he pulled the girl down into the light? Like it's, you know what I mean? Like, and so I feel like they really more so than you see people do with movies now, like they really made the first chapter in a way that they wanted to just hit every, every beat and have everything work. But in this contained environment, and only when they went to make a sequel, did they go, well, I guess Michael Myers just doesn't die. Well, the crazy thing about it is that it all stems from Carrie, right? Because 1977, uh, that film almost as a, just a a lark, really, you know, um, well, what can we do to really, you know, send people out of the theater on a, on a, you know, a bigger high of nerves and, and shock and, you know, something to talk about. And so that's what the hands, you know, thrusting out of the grave is. And... Mm -hmm. If you made a carry two, that decision would have made you, you know, would have boxed you in. And carry two would have been about a, a, a psychic ghost, right? Like she would be yeah. haunting people and she'd be a murderous spirit after, you know, after leaving this plane and, and entering another one. So Holy shit, I want to see carry two now. As you were speaking, I immediately thought in my mind what that movie would look like. And it would be a female candy man where she's a urban legend uh, oh my yeah you remember 30 40 years ago this girl went crazy and killed everybody at the prom and it survives if you say carrie in the mirror five times like bloody mary and then she appears or i don't know maybe that's stupid i'm not sure but you know just the idea that she's still hanging around in some psychic form and can animate her corpse because her uh telekinetic abilities are so strong and she can puppet her her dead body around don't get me wrong i would love to see it but, like, mm-hmm. what happened with Friday the 13th was they'd seen Carrie, and they're like, yeah, let's do something like that. You know, but had no plans at all or commitment to, oh, well, you know, that's going to change what we do in the sequel. You know, for better or for worse, it's not like, oh, well, that really opens things up to some cool possibilities or um, that boxes us in. It's simply, like, just something cool to put at the end of the movie. I don't know in Halloween's case if they thought it through any more than that what that really represented with him not being there. Yeah, I, they, they probably had that in mind. I wouldn't be surprised by it because Black Christmas also has kind of a denouement at the end where it's, you know, he, you know, they never caught him. He's still there. Oh, it's, and, it's awesome. In fact, yeah. he's, he's going to come out and kill the girl who's still in the house. Uh, right, the right, right. If there's a supernatural element, it's a very, very light touch. Uh, the only time that the finger gets a little heavier is at the very end with that shock scare and i think that that kind of leads directly out of the kind of urban legend aspects the campfire tale aspects but with this one it's like you just said it's like oh shit well now we have to figure out the ramifications of that i mean is he just a crazy guy who doesn't feel pain and he doesn't give a shit if you shoot him or you know really if you shoot someone six times they're going to bleed to death fairly quickly. <laughs> and, uh, and in this case, he just kind of doesn't. And so we have to go, okay, well, if he's not going to bleed to death from six shots, then... Well, there is this scene in the film that by by that point, I was a little bit disgusted and tuned out on, on some level. But... <laughs> Are you talking about Sam, Sam Hayes? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. There's a scene yeah, I... <laughs> where we have Dr. Loomis and the police come into a, a local elementary school where apparently uh, Michael stopped by at some point during the night 
and and decided to uh, stick a knife in a, a child's, children's drawing, a child's drawing, and uh, scrawls the word Sam Hain on a uh, chalkboard in blood. And Not Loomis, the most subtle thing ever. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Loomis knows all about it. And he explains it, and it's it's kind of nonsense, though. You know, it doesn't really edify us in any meaningful way, but it's just sort of building in this vague sense of where Michael may have accessed this power. And uh, we don't know, but apparently he had tapped into something prior to that killing, and it, it was in his head in the institution the whole time. Well, you know, I, I had always just kind of disparaged four and five for delving into the Celtic druidic magic, or even three. Three is there because they draw the evil power from Stonehenge stones. Uh, you know, it's it's there, and I, I'd always kind of disparage the series for, you know, why do we have to do that? But now that I think about it, it's like, how could you not? Because if you put that out there and then never do anything with it, it's the gun on the mantelpiece. And speaking of, by the way, speaking of that wonderful scene in the classroom, that (laughs) wonderful, wonderful scene, the way that is directed is almost exactly like, it's unintentionally funny. Because the characters walk in and camera focuses on a broken window, there's a little bit of blood. And the cop is like, here. And then camera pulls back as the characters walk over to a desk, which has more blood. It goes, and here, look at this blood. And then camera pulls all the way back, and there's this gigantic knife slammed <laughs> into a child's drawing that they paid no attention to until camera found it at the same time. I mean, it's like something out of a naked gun movie, you know, <laughs> right, where right. you'd be like, you know, there's this little thing. Then the slightly larger thing, and then here's the elephant in the room. It's yeah. like, that. yeah, they're just like microscopically focused on what, exactly what's in front of them. It's, like it's really at funny. The room. <laughs> yeah. It's really funny. I I but, feel like this is this is a good time for me to mention that uh, I, I watched this movie last night for the first time in in many years. It's one of those ones that's always on AMC, so I've picked up bits and pieces of it over the years. I know it reasonably well, but when I watched it last night. I, I was a little drunk. Uh, what? So, I know. What? So it's not like me. Uh, normally, I take our, our movies very seriously. I try to watch them only while on LSD. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mescaline is also approved. But so the point is, listening, to, Mike, listening to you break down the, the sort of shot-by-shot shot breakdown of that, and I'm like, I kind of vaguely remember that scene, but I'm not going to be able to give you my, my sort of shot-by-shot uh, uh, breakdowns of, of how things went. I have my notes that I took. They're really hard to read. Uh, <laughs> my handwriting really started to suffer after the fourth really well, Vic, what you, what you need to do is drink more and then drunk Vic will be able to understand d- drunkenese. That's my plan. That's, okay, that's well, good. Okay. Go. I, I kind of know what they say, but I'm just saying, I if I'm you know, if if this is not the level of detail that uh, our listeners have come to expect from <laughs> podcast, these films aren't as um, nakedly cheesy. It's certainly okay. Let's just talk about this one. Maybe later on they are as nakedly cheesy as the Friday the Thirteenth sequels. But like this is just like it's not kind of like okay, we're just throwing crazy shit at the wall the way that some of those Friday movies do with ideas and sometimes even when it fails spectacularly, it's kind of amazing. This is more like 
you know, you guys tried and it's earnest and it's serious, but it's sort of thuddingly dull in some ways. Like that's the nastiest thing I can say about it because it's not incompetent. That's why I liken this movie a lot to Jaws 2, which I find to be a very stupid film in a lot of ways. But, uh, and, you know, the same deal. It's like the same character, same general plot, but there's like a lot of like weird plot holes and a lot of weird writing choices and la la la. But just like in Jaws 2, it's like the shark bites a helicopter, dude. Come on. (laughs) Mike, that's a, first off, that that is in, in the moment you said it, that is a spot on analogy. That is absolutely perfect. With all due respect to Halloween 666, there is no Halloween X. Like, that, that, mm-hmm. that doesn't, it never achieves that level of ridiculousness that mm-hmm. they continue to take it seriously all the way through. Um, hey, and, you know, props, are, props for that on some level. But yeah. uh, something else that makes me laugh is right off the bat, we open with the, with the first, the last several minutes of the first movie harkening back to an era when you would recap audiences with stuff. And as you may recall, there were some shots from Friday the 13th that would open up every film for a little while, uh, you know, especially poor Steve tumbling down the stairs in his wheelchair. But the, the first new shot that, we, that I can identify is when Loomis comes out and he sees the shape of the shape in the grass where he had fallen. Oh, wait, wait, Michael. I believe we never saw the shot of the shape being actually blasted off of the balcony in the first film. Correct me if I'm wrong. The the exterior shot. No, I was wrong, but I remember that, John. You're Mm -hmm. right. The exterior shot was not in there. Vic and John one Mike. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, Loomis comes over and he puts his hand into the grass and lifts it up and he's got blood on his fingers. And it it does make me chuckle because it reminds me of, uh, Michael Bean and the Thanksgiving day, the Eli Roth fake, uh, trailer they did for grindhouse where the guy's head is cut off and he's like, it's blood. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to say when the neighbor comes up and, well, what does the neighbor say? But Luma says, you don't know what death is. Yeah. I, I, is this some kind of Halloween trick? Because I've been trick-or-treating to death tonight. And he's like, you don't know what death is. <laughs> Guy's like, sorry, man. I'm wearing my bathrobe. I just got out of bed. I was watching Quincy, which was pretty scary tonight. <laughs> <laughs> tonight on Quincy. <laughs> the Halloween episode of Quincy. Yeah, to, to recap last week's Quincy. Quincy <laughs> versus the shape. Yeah. But we, we we immediately establish that this movie is going to be the somewhat overheated, dumber version of Halloween. But we immediately follow this with uh, two really kick-ass things. Kick-ass thing one is the credit sequence. Oh, but yeah. Time, well, we should talk about that, yeah. Pumpkin opens up and there's a skull underneath, and that shit is pretty fucking cool. Okay, man. that was badass. That skull, like it's the same kind of very super slow track in on the on the jack o' lantern, and then it splits, which is cool. Like we're all right, we're advancing this from the first film, and then you see, yeah, that there's a skull in there, and we just slowly zoom in on a pretty damn spooky skull. I have to say. So, like, I'm thinking at that point, all right, we're we're up in the ante on the first film. This is pretty badass. Doesn't doesn't play out that way. 
it's a little more uh, creepy than uh, you know the Friday Thirteenth titles where they would swoop into a foreground and explode. So <laughs> yeah, this is uh, this is still we're much classier than Friday the Thirteenth, like from the yeah. jump. <laughs> and so right off, right off the bat, you can see the thinking is we opens the first movie with a long tracking shot that went here, went there, followed Michael as a character, and so let's do that again. And instead of feeling like empty replication, I actually really enjoyed how this played out. It's actually one of my favorite things about this whole movie. Uh, I was momentarily tricked. I distinctly recall thinking the first time I saw this movie, that was for at least five minutes. I was tricked into thinking it was going to be as good of a film. Uh, I thought that the following Michael around, uh, especially when Loomis meets Brackett at the end of that alleyway, I thought it was pretty cool. And then uh, you know, we follow him in, in, into the kitchen with the, you know, he's picking up the knife. Oh, hold on. Uh, yeah, we want to we want to talk about that. Because um, I, yeah. actually, I, I like that quite a bit, too. I, I would say that um, I, I forgot to mention before, but it, it should be said that the mission statement of this from Rosenthal's perspective was this is going to be uh, the seamless continuation of the first film. And he very much wanted you to feel like you're just watching the fifth, sixth, seventh reel of Halloween. And at that time, that was kind of a novel idea that like the, the movie picks up literally the second, the, the first one ended. And he wanted, you know, that informed so many choices that you would make as a director in terms of style and tone and everything else that like, no, this is just like that movie continuing. And yeah, it, Early on, you, you've, you've got us. Like, it does feel like uh, exactly that, that it's, we're in the same capable hands. He initially is skulking around the neighborhood again while, you know, sirens are going off and people are starting to react to what happened at, a, at his first kill site. And he is peering in the window of, like, a, a middle-aged to older couple's house. And they're, like, making a sandwich and watching TV. And now, finally, we got... Guys, we talked about this last time. We uh, discussed the idea of, well, why isn't this on the media? Well, uh, in the media, apparently it instantly hits the media, like right after uh, Lori is wheeled out of the um, of the house because now the TV news are giving specifics and they're putting out an alert and people are, are you know, watching this. I also like, I want to say that the Halloween marathon is still going on. And now it's Night of the Living Dead that is playing. Yes, on TV. I definitely noticed that. And mm-hmm. I wonder if this is the first movie that put Night of the Living Dead on a TV screen in a horror movie. Uh, I mean, it's definitely become a, a thing uh, enough that every time it pops up in a movie now, I go, God damn it! Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, it was public domain, of course. So, like, there was no nothing to stop anyone from putting it in right, a movie. Right, right. You know, it, it's, it's always there, A, because it's public domain, B, because it's such a classic horror movie, it feels like we're giving a shout-out to one of the greats. You know, in a but, weird way, like, as a side note, and I hate to say this because I know they lost so much money on that deal, but I would almost say that the cultural reach of Night of the Living Dead was helped by the fact that it was just so ubiquitous that people were making a quick buck wallpapering the world with it because they didn't have to pay any royalties for it. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, uh, I'll, you know, it strikes me though, that, you know, this movie being 1981 at that time, Night of the Living Dead was only 14 years old. It would almost be like if, uh, I, I, I shot death metal two tomorrow and it had characters watching like some movie from 2004 
mm-hmm. on a screen in the background. What would that be, like, Grudge 2 or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like a random, random studio sequel. The characters are like, oh, my God, wow. <laughs> well, um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll walk us through the scene and then throw it back to you guys because I, I did find it interesting that Michael does enter their house and has every opportunity to do what he does like two minutes later to the next girl, but he just picks up the knife and leaves. I am fascinated by that choice, mm-hmm. but at the same time, no. I, 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 it's clear that he has a pathology. He either kills girls who remind him of his sister, mm-hmm. or else people who get in the way of that in some way. Uh, for instance... Uh, the security guard at the hospital, the boyfriends, guys who will fight him if he tries to kill their girlfriend. He will follow Tommy around the neighborhood, but he doesn't kill him. He'll bu- he'll bump right into the kid. You know, yeah, he'll go. Like, we see that yeah. again later with the boombox kid. Like he almost shows right. a a lack of aggression towards young boys, but he because I think he might him. actually yes yes he may he may relate to them. But I think he may have an element of not just, oh, you're in the way, but I don't think he likes boyfriends. Right, but the security guard, too, is someone who functionally could get in the way of what he's going to do. So the security guard has to go away. Yeah. And it, you know, to the extent that he lays a trap for him uh, to a certain degree. But you know, this elderly couple who's just kind of watching a movie on TV, he doesn't give a shit. You know, to the extent that he takes the knife and he walks out of there. Neither of them knowing how close the chill hand of death has come to them, has brushed across their cheek. So close, in fact, that the girl right next door that lightning bolt lands on. Mm-hmm. And uh, her dialogue is another thing that this movie immediately lifts from the first one is we have a snarky teenage girl having a snarky teenage or phone yeah. conversation. Uh, and in this one, it was <laughs> she hears a s- scream of the old woman as she realizes that the knife has been taken by a wounded serial killer and comes to the conclusion that because she bitches at her husband all the time, the husband has finally had it and it started to beat her. And apparently whoever is on the other line is just like, Oh my God, she should call a cops. And the girl is like, nah, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) So we, you know, in the grand tradition of horror movies first murdering an unctuous character. In this one, we established that this girl uh, couldn't give two shits if her neighbor is a victim of domestic violence. And then, what do you know, 60 seconds later, she dies under Michael Myers' knife. So, dies by a knife taken from that household. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. There is sort of a symmetry to that. And I wonder in sort of a six degrees of Annie kind of way, like where this girl fit into the milieu that was established like in the first film is she you know ben tramer's ex or you know what's her story but uh, in any event yeah she does seem like kind of a mean girl and i my eyes were rolling in that sequence and you know finding out that it was kind of carpenter's mandate whether the producers of the studio or whoever came back to him and said look at this cut it's not scary we need something and he you know somewhat cynically inserted this scene it's interesting for a moment because when she goes further into the house and turns around and realizes that the door is left hanging open, for a moment it feels like it could be creepy because she's just heard 
moments ago that a murderous escaped lunatic is stalking her exact neighborhood. And I think that if the scene commits any sins, it's the fact that it doesn't hang a little bit more. It's a little indicative of this movie that it's not quite as perfectly balanced as the first one is it, it, it's languorous when it should be tighter and in this scene it should be uh it should hold more it should build this tension a little bit more as every opportunity to do so and just kind of snuffs it out by having and this is really weird too michael leaps on her from the shadows like he jumps out of foreground and we've never seen michael act like that ever uh so it's weird uh, in fact, there are multiple situations where he's given the opportunity to murder Laurie Strode if only he picked up his space by like <laughs> one mile per hour more and he refuses to do so. And in this scene, like he leaps onto this girl. So, yeah, he's yeah, like a lion in the savannah here, you know? <laughs> yeah, he pounces. It, 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 it actually got a gasp out of my wife who, who watches with me for exactly 15 minutes before falling asleep. She was like, <gasps> When he leapt out at her, I want to throw out an alternate theory here that uh, the reason that the old couple survives, you know, who survives from the first movie besides Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously, Tommy and Lindsay. Why? Because they're watching the thing from another world. He saves the couple because they're watching Night of the Living Dead. I think perhaps if this teenage girl had only been watching... Frankenstein or some kind of horror movie, maybe Michael would have left her alone. So Michael is like a, a frustrated cinephile. Who, who, who... Exactly, <laughs> yes. He's, it's only, you know, the, the people that shit on horror movies, he's going to stab. But, uh, oh, if you're into the, the Howard Hawks, the thing from another world, you, you're going to make it to the end of this one. So ah, It's like the jazz man of New Orleans. The, exactly. The important thing is, gentlemen, that, that we three are safe. Clearly. Ah, good. Well, you know, a, a lifetime of being a horror nerd has finally paid off somehow. <laughs> <laughs> who knows Who knows how many uh, escaped lunatics with knives in their hands have come to my door or window, peeked through the slats thinking, oh, I'm going to murder this fucking dude, seen me watching Leprechaun 4. Said, <laughs> and then no. turn away and keep walking with the, a, a smile. This, this, this guy's cool. He's, he's checking the box. <laughs> You know, we didn't just do this uh, for the for the sex, you know, like, yeah, you get laid a lot <laughs> as a horror nerd. <laughs> Listen, fame, riches, women, all that goes by the wayside <laughs> when it comes to the true things. That, I could have joined a band. Want. I could have been a jock. But no, I knew <laughs> this was the path to take. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So in general, it's a cool sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely thought that the staging of this stuff, you know, was somewhat promising. But we, we definitely don't, as you mentioned, play out the, the potential suspense there. Like, it, it literally is just like a lion pounces on her and the scene's over. You know, like, it's very abrupt. It doesn't have the really patient buildup of the first film. And, of course, it shouldn't in that, like, she's a throwaway character. But, you know, it's it just kind of struck me as cheap. So, moving on, we've got uh, the inevitable sequence, which we didn't get in the first film, but it's where uh, Sheriff Lee Brackett finds out that his daughter, Annie, is dead, and we get a cameo from uh, Nancy Loomis, who comes back. John, that actually comes much later. Oh, yeah? Uh, well, yeah. It feels like they made up every scene on like a three by five card and kind of threw it in the air 
and wrote the script from that. Uh, the it's weird how some of the scenes track together, and in this case, about thirty seconds after Loomis shoots Michael Myers immediately the entire world knows about what's happened in this house to the extent that it's on television, it's on the radio, it's all, it's, people are talking about it on the phone, it's all everyone talking about. And there are lots of cops involved. There are cops all over the place, and including Brackett is still driving around with Loomis, who got, you know, he picked him up out of that alleyway, as we saw. I shot him six around. times! <laughs> getting better, John. Keep working. And and they're they're in a lot of ways they're kind of reprising exactly their their character dynamic from the first movie, where Brackett's like, ah, you let him out. No, I didn't let him out. I tried to warn everybody. Ah, I shot oh. him six times. He's unnatural. Ah. I can't and believe we had to sit through that again. By the way, the you yeah. let him out. <laughs> yeah, again, he gets accused of letting him out like four or five times in the course of this movie, and eventually, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. But uh, what happens is that actually the Ben Tramer scene because they're driving around and they see the guy that that's it's him it's him and Loomis jumps out of the car and he's gonna shoot Ben Tramer in the middle of the street with a bunch of kids all over now to be fair because, Ben Tramer is wearing the exact same mask that like, a, little do, does he know that uh, an escaped lunatic has stolen the same mask from the same hardware store that Ben Tramer bought his from now this and, is where uh, your mind explodes because Ben Ben Tramer is the guy that Laurie liked and who potentially liked her that she was going to go to the dance with the next night. And he yeah. puts on the same mask as the assailant who has murdered Laurie's friends and is dead set on killing Laurie and whom we'll find is Laurie's brother. And not only is that like ghoulishly ironic, it gets Ben Tramer killed. Yeah, and on top of everything else, we established in the first movie that instead of hanging around with Laurie, he decides to go out drinking with his buddy. And apparently this dude is spring break wasted because he's he's doing like the Frankenstein stagger down the sidewalk with these kids there. He realizes that a guy is pointing a gun at him, and what does he do is he he turns around and like in a diagonal, he just kind of like Gumby. He was like like a Gumby Frankenstein full of twenty four PBR tall boys. <laughs> staggers into the middle of the street, and the most responsible police officer in the entire world, who's going seventy five miles an hour down a residential street. Because Brackett told him to meet him at such and such intersection in the middle of Halloween with kids everywhere, plows into this dude, <laughs> smashes him into another vehicle that explodes. Yeah, pins him to a van which explodes, causing yeah. a fiery <laughs> inferno. Yeah. By the way, this is the longest trick-or-treating window I have ever seen. Because especially especially when it's all over the TV and radio that there's there's an escape murder. <laughs> Yeah, like, we saw kids trick-or-treating at the very beginning of the last movie. I mean, once the sun started to go down. And this movie is hours later, and there's still people out trick-or-treating. Right. Well, I, I used to go pretty hard when I was a kid. I, I'll go to, like, I, you know, about eight thirty, nine o'clock. You're you know, a serious trick-or-treater. Well, shit, man. I was trick-or-treating at the end tale of the period when it was like a serious aspect of you know it was before everyone got lost their minds over it so anyway you were like 1920 so, yeah so <laughs> so there's an explosion 
this poor guy dies. And just like Annie, just like Linda, apparently on this night, God just starts pointing at people and says, fuck you. Fuck you. And Ben Tramer, fuck you hardest. It's, <laughs> That's a rough way to go, too. Fuck you, fuck you the most. <laughs> ben Tramer's like, not going to show up with a corsage tomorrow night, Lori. I'm sorry. <laughs> If I had about five grand in a week, I would throw together a short called The Ballad of Ben Tramer. <laughs> By the way, in the credits, uh, and I believe on IMDb, he's Bennett Tramer, which really sounds like he was bound for a, a medical career or a, you know, a professor or Fortune 500 CEO like Bennett Tramer. That, Ooh. His son would go on to fight Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. <laughs> <laughs> and wear a bitchin chainmail vest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. Isn't he carrying so, a bag? He has like a he has a trick or treating bag, doesn't he? Yeah, who knows, man? Who knows? And but also I, he I, looks I, to be about 5'7" to me. <laughs> I am also looking at this movie and given the fact that I'm looking through the prism of 2018, I I'm immediately going, "Oh my god, this family has just gotten rich." They're going to sue Haddonfield for everything <laughs> this municipality has. They're going to sue the city. They're going to sue the fucking sheriff's department. They're going to sue fucking everybody in a five-mile radius. They're going to sue the kids. They're going to sue Pleasance. I think uh, Donald Pleasance kills himself at the very end because he knows that otherwise he's just going to be broke <laughs> jail anyways. Well, we were listing in the, in the first film, like, the many fuck-ups of Loomis. And I think this might be, this might take the, this is the cherry on top, man. This takes the cake. Looping all the way back to the point that I made at the top of this, uh, in terms of the weird editing and timing and everything else, the TV has a story, radio has a story, people are talking about it on the phone, but who doesn't have the story about the three bodies in this house about six blocks away is the sheriff, the head of the sheriff's department or the, the main cop of this town. He's driving around with this goofy English doctor and no one calls him on the radio. And the only, only possible way I can sell it to myself is if blonde super Dave Osborne decides that he doesn't <laughs> want to tell deputy. him about the radio. Yeah. But he does have that kind of voice. Really. <laughs> he does uh, that or a pro wrestler. He's, he's got a weird vibe. There's an explosion. He's on fire. They're watching his corpse burn. Then here comes the deputy, jumps out. Whose name is, uh, we should get that straight uh, so mm -hmm. that as we discuss this further, I think it's Gary. Yeah, it's Gary is the deputy. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gary the super cop in the sequel to Cobra. It's scary. <laughs> Carpenter's mentioned a lot in interviews that he part of him wishes that he was like Howard Hawks, you know, just kind of shooting one Western after the other back to back in the 50s. And you can see his love of Westerns kind of bleed through and uh, especially a lot of his earlier films. I don't know what it is about this actor or the character, but he feels like a, a guy that I expect to be playing a ranch hand or a deputy in, in an actual Western. Uh, he's got that energy to him but he sure I, does I, I, and maybe that's where he came from but a lot of the actors i wanted to mention came from rick rosenthal's acting class uh, because well, when he when, when he graduated from afi he's like you know as a lot of directors do he thought i need to learn more about actors so that i can better direct them it's not something that i'm i'm good at so he goes and he attends uh some acting classes which apparently contained uh michelle pfeiffer and Tom Selleck, and like a couple of other people who I guess weren't available for this movie. He was like, Michelle, eh, 
eh, you're okay, man. but the girl yeah, that I like, end up casting as nurse number three is way more talented than you. Yeah, you know, Tom, <laughs> eh, you know, I'm just not feeling it, buddy. <laughs> yeah, Tom read for uh, the doctor, but didn't get it. I want to point out, if you tell me this guy feels like he has like a Western vibe, it's probably because his name is Hunter Von Lear. <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay. Michelle, that's great, but Von Lear. That guy's got, guy's you know, got what I'm looking for. He's got the... Michelle, you're doing great, but I think Tawny just has a little bit more classical <laughs> training than you do. Yeah, yeah there, there's a nurse who, like, I saw a Tawny in the credits, and the second that I saw her in the movie, I'm like, that's Tawny right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I actually know who you're talking about without having to look it up. <laughs> She's a Tawny. If I were writing a character who is a, an evil rich kid who bedevils our hero in a boarding school scenario, I would name him uh, Hunter Von Lear the <laughs> Third. Yeah, <laughs> we we definitely with a name like that, you're guaranteed to be in House Slytherin. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but, Harry Potter but, aside, anyway, uh, it's only now that Brackett learns that his daughter, then we get the scene in which they go to the house and they're wheeling her way out. And uh, I, I give that actor, you know, who's the actor who plays Brackett again? Um, Charles Cyphers. Yeah. He, last time we were, we were talking about Halloween, I mentioned in Rob Zombie's Halloween to, uh, you know, the cop who finds his daughter that, you know, completely loses his mind. That's like an unexpectedly like, there's a lot of emotional ballast to his reaction. It's it's like the one thing that I really carried out of that movie, uh, that and the guy getting his head squished. And uh, in this one, he's very understated. Uh, there's a contained fury that's looking for someplace to go, and he immediately aims it at Loomis. And he's been running around all night. You know, by now, any rational person would, would realize that Loomis, A, d you know, didn't let him out, was actually trying to... I mean, the, the dude's running around with a fucking gun. He shot the guy six times. You know, of course he's on team anti-Michael Myers. But still, it's like that's where the ire goes. Uh, and then, how many times did he shoot him, Mike? Six times? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, slight British accent. Where is it Australian? I forgot. It's a very indeterminate accent. Because uh, he plays a significant role in Wake and Fright, uh, which, oh, is Australian. which is an amazing film. Amazing. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that's one where uh, he hangs around in a shack and eats kangaroo stew and uh, rapes a man off screen. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a little weird. It's a weird movie. So, anyways. Um, well, I'm sure everyone listening is just like, oh, my God, I got to see that. Yeah, I got added to the top of my to-do list. All right, good to know. Yeah, so Brackett, as a character, pretty much, to the best of my knowledge, he completely leaves the movie from this point forward. Oh, you're correct. We never yeah, see him so, again. So that actor got one or two days of work. And it's just uh, weird that he gets replaced in the film. Like, oh, okay, now there's another cop who's basically playing, fulfilling the same function. One could say that he would be so full of fury that he would be like, all right, Loomis, I totally get it. You and I are going to be – we're going to team up and take down Michael Myers once and for all. But it also makes sense that it's like, you know, you should get out of here, take care of your the loss of your daughter, la, la, la. Either that or the actor just had other shit going on. He's like, I can give you a day. 
I could squeeze in a day if you could just write my character out of the movie really quick. It's just weird. <laughs> it's weird that like yeah. we have this character of Annie and we have him in the first film and we have sort of their relationship and it's a thing and you kind of leave the film I felt a little unsatisfied in the sen- in the first movie that like he never even finds out what happened to her. And like just to have the opportunity to kind of deal with that in this film and and not it just it struck me as more uh, lazy or just not feeling like they could represent it authentically. And, and this is a film that has almost no authenticity, in my opinion, in character relationships or deep emotions. Like I, I really hate to say this, but I don't think that the um, acting class people are very good. Now I will say that Bud is a striking uh, character. Now this is the ultra sleazy New Yorky uh, ambulance driver who Lance Guest is paired up with. And he's the, he's kind of playing the role of the sex crazed uh, scumbag that slasher films often have. And like, I thought he had sort of a, a weird charisma to him. And apparently he's charismatic because he's fucking the hot nurse. So I guess he's got some kind of game, but I found him thoroughly reprehensible. Oh, this guy. reprehensible, just, but at least yeah, like, he's like a like, guy who should be in a movie. You know, like he's, yeah. he's, he's like well, a, a representative type who nails his type. Rather than yeah. just seeming like, uh, I'm speaking very woodenly, and I don't even right, right, right. know what movie I'm in. But yeah, you're absolutely right. He's got this very uh, New York street guy kind of energy. I would expect him to pop up in Goodfellas too. Well, I, uh, I heard that the he, director, Rosenthal, had to really lobby for him and champion him. He's one of the acting class guys, because mm-hmm. uh, Deborah Hill, uh, you know, correctly said, why is this guy in Haddonfield, Indiana? You know, like, yeah, yeah, Illinois. But uh, yeah, Illinois, I, every right. everybody is very uh, milk toast, small town Midwest, and uh, apparently he owes the mob some money, <laughs> and he's under a witness protection program, and they put him out in the Haddonfield. So now you have this this goomba wise guy type dude <laughs> pitching like this super crass game to the nurses. He sticks out. I will say, I mean, he's one of the guys where I clicked on his filmography and went, holy shit, yeah, I remember him in Black Widow and Ruskies and the Relentless franchise and Maniac Cop 2. Like, if you've ever been watching HBO or Showtime at 3 o'clock in the morning, like, you've seen Leo Rossi in something. Maniac Uh, Cop movies? All day. Yeah. (laughs) All all day Maniac Cop movies. Halloween movies? That's so much... I don't know. Look, I'm just saying. I, you guys were, were we, we were talking about uh, writing off uh, Sheriff Brackett and stuff. I'm just saying, if you're uh, Rick Rosenthal and you've got uh, Hunter Von Leer on the sidelines, I, I got to figure out how to get that guy in the game. You know, so <laughs> I, I got to get this Cyphers guy off screen. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I'm sorry, Charlie Cyphers. You're gonna you're gonna step aside, and we're gonna get uh, this young buck in the game and see what he can do. Which is not much, but <laughs> yeah. Like, what does that character even do for the film other than sound like Super Dave Osborne? I will also just while I'm while I'm looking over the cast very quickly, I want to point out that Nancy Loomis is credited as a corpse cameo, which I yeah. didn't know was a thing. That's cool. Well, you didn't notice her. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the real her. her. Yeah. 
her, her credit is literally corpse cameo. <laughs> oh, I love that. It's not cameo. It's corpse cameo. Oh, okay. Is, I get like, yeah, that's what she did. Like it's an accurate description of it. I just didn't know that was something you said about people in movies. Well, that's, uh, that's the new IMDB terminology, I guess. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the, the character credited with playing the shape here is named Dick Warlock. You know, uh, Vic, I have always aspired to being called a dick warlock. <laughs> I've, I've always thought that if I were in a porno, that would be my name. Dick Warlock. Yeah, that's, that's pretty spectacular. I can only assume that Billy Warlock, who's also credited in the movie, is related to him somehow. But also, and I saw this, I actually remember this through my alcoholic haze, when they were showing the credits at the end, I saw this name pop up, and I was like, no. But yes, uh-huh. I know where you're going. Data Carvey, Data Carvey, Data Carvey is credited as playing Barry McNick. Like no fucking clue who that was. I don't remember it. Well, but... I found the clip on YouTube. And I'm not surprised that you don't remember it. Uh, there's like a reporter, TV producer, and she says to some assistant who's taking notes, whose back is mostly turned to us, like, you know, I want you to get some interviews and get some waivers. And if they won't sign a waiver or talk to them anyway. And he just kind of nods, and, and that's uh, that's Dana Carvey. We're at the house. We see Annie's corpse come out. That conversation occurs, and there's a crowd around. We, we, we've got Goomba paramedic guy and, <laughs> and, our, and Lance and our, our, our hero Jimmy. guy. Jimmy. Is... Jimmy. Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Right. They bring out Lori, and she's like, don't put me to sleep. Don't put me to sleep. Don't let them put me to sleep. X, Y, Z, because she's afraid that Michael is still out there and he's going to come and get her. She's not wrong. Way at the end of the movie, she is loaded into another ambulance by another two guys. And she's saying the same thing. Don't let them put me to sleep. Don't let them put me to sleep. And it's such a weird bookend that this girl has pretty much the exact same experience twice in one night where a bunch of people are murdered. She's the only survivor. She gets loaded into the back of the ambulance. There's almost something like happy death day ish about it. I started thinking that what if you had uh, someone who no matter what they did, eventually they would get loaded into the back of an ambulance and they would be taken to the next situation and everyone you know, would get murdered. They get loaded to another ambulance, taken to the next, next situation and everyone would get murdered again and again and again for eternity or whatever, or if you salt whatever cosmic riddle that you had to do, like Happy Death Day. Well, you know what I noticed about that sequence was um, they didn't put her on a fucking gurney. She has a, a, the one injury we know she has at the end of the movie is a broken foot. And they're like, oh, okay, there's a couple of steps here. Uh, there you go. Yeah. She has to climb yeah. in herself to the back of the ambulance. Stop, sweetie. Yeah, yeah we, we, we used up all of our gurneys on the first one. And now we're out of gurneys, so you you just have to climb up <laughs> on this rope ladder. <laughs> like, it would be one thing if the one injury that she we yeah. knew she had was not a broken foot, but it's like, hey, just go on, yeah. hop up there. <laughs> yeah, hop up, Tuts. It'll be fine. They uh, load her in. They, they don't put her under, but she's soporific because she's in shock, I would say. Oh, they do put her under. That was a deleted scene. Uh, but yeah, they do. Oh, really? Yes, they do end up putting her under. Because we get the shots with the doctor at the place. I thought that that's where she gets sedated. Oh, okay. Now, that's something we have to talk about. When they get to the hospital, we learned that the doctor who will be taking care of her has been drinking at a party with her parents. 
He was at the country. No, no, yes. he was at the he was at the yes, country club. At, yes, yes. Uh huh. Nope. Absolutely. Watch the movie again. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah, no. He no. is absolutely. No. Absolutely. I'm not going to watch the movie. <laughs> Although, you, 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 what's interesting is uh, Jimmy or Bud recognize Lori for her father. They, one of them mm-hmm. goes. You mean Strode of Strode Realty? <laughs> right. Like in the first movie, we get a glimpse of dad, uh, not mom, I don't think. And he seems fine. But between the two movies, we learn that the Strodes are partying it up at this country club party with this doctor who gets called in drunk off his ass, more or less, to uh, take care of their daughter. And then they are AWOL, even with all of this shit in the news and everything else. For this entire movie, nobody gets a hold of them because they're at their fucking key party or, you know, they're swinging. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there is a moment when Mrs. Alves checks in and she's like, hey, uh, we tried calling at the party. They were, had already left. They haven't gotten home yet. So I'll just keep trying. And I think that's actually what triggers her to pick up the phone and, and try again and realize that the phone lines have been cut because Michael's done that. So well, yeah, there's uh, another yeah. deleted scene where, like, following up on that, she has somebody else making calls, like the girl who ends, ends up getting the hypodermic in the, you know, around her eye, uh, and the the verdict is basically that these this couple, the Strodes, are off the grid in the middle of the night here. They're dead in a car wreck somewhere, you know, because mm. shit is just going down tonight because oh, it's man. Halloween. If only they had plowed into uh, Ben Kramer. <laughs> on their way back from the party. Oh, God, there's such a better version. Oh, Vic, you're right. That is so much better. I mean, at least, like, it would justify the driving. And then, yeah, and then the cops arrest them for vehicular homicide and take them away, and that's why they're not able to be reached, because, (laughs) no, we're not going to let your parents visit you because they're under, they're in a cell for murdering. Crying out in the drunk tank. Yeah, they they killed this poor kid, Ben Tramer. Ben Tramer! Do you think that might, that, at him. that might be one coincidence too many? I don't know. Yeah, but, but then Lori's happy because she's like, oh, well, at least now he'll never find out that I, I liked him. Because her big thing with Annie in right. the first movie, tell Ben that I didn't mean anything by it. That would be, that's great. There's a, you get the weird relief from her where she's like, oh, God, that's terrible. But at least I don't yeah. have to, I don't have to find a dress for tomorrow night. We cut to the hospital and we get a piece of business that's never uh, that doesn't pay off in any way. It's this this girl shows up or a young woman, I should say. Young woman shows up and she's got a little boy and he's got uh, what looks like a razor blade stuck in his mouth. I think that yeah. they were kind of doing a riff on the weird satanic panic of the time that, you know, oh, people were putting razor blades in the in the candy. I can confirm that. Uh, I looked at some special features. That was something that Dino De Laurentiis hated, but uh, they, they kept it in the movie. I think it was in the Carpenter and uh, Hill script that, yeah, they were absolutely playing on the idea that this kid bit into an apple or something and now has a razor blade stuck in his upper lip. It's pretty gruesome. In fact, I would say it's the first true element of gore that we get in this movie because the girl that Michael Myers kills uh, pretty much happens off screen. He pounces and that's it. So yeah, the first truly gore thing that we get is, uh, oh, we see Annie's slash throat. That's it. But now it's like, yeah, this little boy with blood pouring out of his mouth. He's like, it's like, it's, it's, 
it's horrible. It's a little horrible. By the way, that's his mom, Mike. But, <laughs> I mean, like, she's supposed to be in her 30s or something. <laughs> the radio reports are going on, and a kid with a boombox wanders right into Michael Myers and bounces off of his chest, much as something that happened in the first movie. And this is where Michael gets the information that Laurie is in the hospital and that's how he knows to go to the hospital. And that is one of the additional John Carpenter sequences because they realized, well, how the, how the hell does Michael end up finding out where to go? And so they're like, well, we better put that in at the 11th hour. So they shot that sequence. Same thing. If that kid had been listening to cool in the gang, he'd be fucking dead, you know, <laughs> like dodging bullets, man. And Laurie would be fine because Michael yeah. would never know where to go. <laughs> so um he follows oh. i guess the nurses there or something like the no uh there there's a giant sign that says haddonfield memorial oh, yeah. hospital and a That's big right. arrow and uh but it, it is cool that uh he is just kind of strolling around and he passes a bunch of pedestrians who pay him no mind whatsoever well we've established uh, that the uh hardware store stocked the mask in in this town and we've established mm-hmm. that ben tramer thought that would be a good mask to wear so yeah i mean all of that makes sense but i kept thinking in a situation like this if you're putting out a apb and descriptions on the tv and the radio like, wouldn't a description of this guy be one of the things that you would put out there if you're trying to find him? Well, see, here's the thing. is the As much as we're laughing at the whole Ben Tramer thing, it does pay off the reason uh, Loomis's concerns from the first movie, why they don't put it out over TV and radio, because mm-hmm. they'll see him everywhere. And for all we know, uh, if they had put it out and said, hey, look out for a guy in, like, a blank white, William Shatner mask, then random vigilantes would have filled Ben Tramer full of lead. So Ben Tramer might have died a slightly less excruciating death. <laughs> yes. I, I no matter no matter what Ben's ticket was punched tonight. He had no idea. He had nothing to do with this. <laughs> well, he could have he could have taken the mask off, you know, potentially. He could have hung out with a bookish girl with no boyfriend, but instead he decided to go slam tall boys in the quarry with his dumb buddy, and that's why he's dead. But uh, yeah, I do like the the look of the scene that Michael's walking around, and uh, it, it is very Dean Kundi ish. Uh, it's very shadowy, but it's got like these kind of punctuations of green and red. The other characters kind of come in and out of shadow. I, I'm not absolutely sure why the little. The kid with the boombox has the giant cowboy hat with the kerchief on it. It's Halloween, uh, man. It's Halloween. I, 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 oh, he's dressed as a cowboy. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. All right. Okay. I, I get it. Cowboy. <laughs> he's he's boombox cowboy. And, and let, let me tell you this. That would be my other poor name. <laughs> bad. It's no Dick Warlock, but. <laughs> <laughs> Dick Warlock and boombox cowboy. Uh, just because we're talking about it a little bit, and I think this applies more when we get to the hospital. I feel like there were more full body shots of Michael walking. It's a little, it's a little hard to articulate. And these are the, the notes that I can actually read. So mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> fire those bullets while you can, man. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get my shots in while I have them because I'm going to go quiet here. And soon. No, I, I had this sense that Michael looked more human in this movie and the thing that i identified was that there were more sort of full shots of him walking as opposed to 
these kind of dirty POVs of him walking or a lot of still shots and that kind of stuff. But like this notion of him walking a lot, like we see Jason walk uh, in the Friday the 13th movies, I, there was just something more sort of corporeal, more uh, pedestrian about him. It's sort of a fitting phrase given that he's just him walking. But these images of him walking in the hallways and walking down the street, it felt very different than, again, those those weird, deeply shattered shots of him crossing the street from uh, Lindsay's house to Tommy's house and some of that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. right, right. I, there, there is something cool about the idea that this random guy who's just walking down the street and people are passing him, not even paying him in mind, that guy just murdered like six or seven people. And the cops are looking for him. No one's even paying a glance. The juxtaposition of Michael Myers in normal scenarios is, I kind of dig it. It's like we're talking with the first one. It's, we, we take Dracula out of the castle and put him on Main Street. But well, I think those it, are two just... valid points on both of your parts, but I, I really want to echo what Vic said in that like, there's a, a magic to the careful positioning of Michael in the first film that makes every time he's on screen count. And that's, that's lacking in this film. And I think the word yeah. pedestrian has more than one meaning in this scenario. Yeah, uh, in the first movie, there's a lot of standing and staring, and you're wondering what this guy is thinking. Whereas with this one, he's way more on a mission. They give him this mission, and so he becomes the unstop, you know, the implacable force. You know, to the extent that he's like walking through glass doors and shit like that to get at them. Uh, this is where he becomes a little bit more like Jason, I guess, as you could say. He's he's less of a spectral presence and more of a like a Frankenstein-y type dude. Who, or a zombie. He's, he's, no, he's, he's a Terminator in this movie. Yeah. That's exactly what he is. He's yeah. a Terminator. He, he's got a target, and he's going to just walk toward it. He's like it, and it follows. You know, He's just going to walk toward it until he gets you, and that's it. That's the extent of his plot. Well, again, like a zombie. You know, slow, plotting, implacable, relentless, right. inexorable. But, but not a it, wraith. Not a wraith. Like, the shape in the first movie is more like a, a ghost, you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. He's not standing around and thinking and planning and dreaming. Yeah, uh, yeah he, he's, he's more of a, a you know, just a, a, a Terminator, a monster instead of a ghost. Yeah. yeah like, I, right. get, I get a little freaked out watching like whenever you're either in the POV of Michael in the first film or you just glimpse him somewhere like there's a there's a charge to it. And yeah. this film doesn't figure out how to do that. He's just a Terminator. It's a different kind of setup with that kind of villain. So, yeah, uh, we, we see Michael, and he's walking. Uh, Haddonfield is not a big place. He's going to get to the hospital pretty quick because uh, when next we find our characters, they are, uh, oh, we're hanging around with Jimmy and Goomba, and they establish that one of the nurses is sexually promiscuous, and she's late. Oh, no, 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 oh, let's back up. Because we get uh, uh, this weird conversation between our, our promiscuous nurse and a friend of hers. And she's going to be late because they spent too much time at a Halloween party bobbing for apples. <laughs> and she's upset about the fact that I guess her complaint is that it was like a little kid's party where they're like bobbing for apples and shit and, instead of like getting laid and wasted. But the friend is like, hey, I need a ride. And they spend about a, a minute or two dickering over whether she's going to give her a ride home or not. And yeah. it's for nothing. We could have just had this girl at the party and be like, oh shit, I'm late. And 
could have been handled that way. But, By the way, uh, that's another that's, thing that Carpenter added, like to, to develop the characters more or something. Well, and, and then I guess we could say that she's kind of self-centered uh, because it's like well, you, you promised that you'd give me a ride. And she's like, well, I'm late. Can't you get a ride from this dude who lives a town over? It's like, no, I can't. Yeah, it, I think it, it comes down to being like, um, she says, well, it's five minutes to take you to the hospital, and then it's five minutes to go home. You're like, yeah, what? And, and then she, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then she, yeah, yeah, it sounds like she makes a bigger deal of it, and then, but then she's 15 minutes late, which wouldn't be a big deal, except Mrs. Alves informs her that she's been late again, and you know, not so subtly threatens her job. You know, it would be, you're a good nurse, it would be a shame to lose you. You have to learn how to get here. La, la, la. This is Kara, uh, Kara, the maternity nurse. We have Jimmy and we have Bud. And uh, it's clear that Jimmy is already smitten with Lori because Bud is being super crassy, smoking uh, a roach in the break room, which I'm not sure is in line with hospital HR guidelines. By the way, I never believed this was a real hospital for a second. I mean, for one thing, there's like five people in it. It doesn't look like a hospital. It doesn't sound like a hospital. Like, it, this is more like maybe a private clinic out in the, in, the, in the sticks. But, you know, the idea that this is supposed to be a normal hospital with, like, filled with patients, it just doesn't come over. Yeah. I would buy it as a hospital on the outskirts of Haddonfield, Illinois. I, you know, it's not going to be... You know, well, one uh, of the things this... that's unrealistic is that uh, the lights turn out about halfway through the movie. And then I found out um, in the deleted scenes that, like, um, Michael cuts the power, but that's not in the actual cut of the film. So I was just like, so this rinky-dink hospital just, like, turns their lights off at 10 p.m. or something? Like that's I would of... make it. It would make sense to let the patient sleep. You don't have the giant lights going in the hallway. I, 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 I bought it. It's like, you know, it's nighttime. Oh, well, you, that would be awesome. But if you've been in a hospital, you know that they'll wake your ass up at 3.30 in the morning to stick you with a needle to check your fucking blood. And the lights are on. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, in in the meanwhile, uh, real or imagined hospitals, uh, Bud is smoking this roach. Uh, and he's, he's, uh, being very crass. This oh guy. yeah. He does yeah. a version yeah. of, um, of, um, what's the song? Oh shit. Um, amazing grace, amazing grace. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And well, he, yeah. he tweaks so, the lyrics, uh, in a pornographic way. Yeah. And he, he longs for a big slice of pizza with sausage, onion, peppers. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I swear guy, he's, he's in the witness protection program. This guy. <laughs> The, the other thing is we established just like in the first film, because see here, here's kind of the hallmark, I think of the good sequel versus the sequel that struggles it, it, in the better sequels I've seen, you pay off the audience's expectations. You give them more of what they came for in the first one and your lower class of sequels. I think you just kind of do a version of the same movie again uh, but a little bit stupider. And in this case, we established that we have two guy dudes around, and we have two other female characters who aren't Lori, and one of them is very prom- promiscuous, and the other one is kind of uh, nerdy because she complains that the guy is swearing too much, and she gets huffed up about that, and she feels very... She feels like Lori in the first movie, you know, like, like a character like that. I think that if Lori wasn't in this hospital, she would be our Lori, the bookish girl with no boyfriend. You know, she's not as 
mature, I guess you could say. By the but, way, uh, in that scene, you'll notice that she keeps her face turned at a certain angle, and she mm-hmm. doesn't show. She basically is in profile. That's because mm-hmm. earlier in the shoot, they shot her death scene, which is when she gets a, a syringe stabbed um, in her temple, and she fell into a table and what? required numerous stitches around her eye. Well, and so, they were in yeah. <laughs> 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 so they had to shoot around that and put like heavy makeup on her because like she visibly had like all these stitches in her face. <laughs> mm. Actually, John, uh, I just pulled it up. Uh, they actually did shoot it in a function, a Pasadena hospital. Well, that's what uh, that's what they they have on Wikipedia, and I, I think that I, I heard that in the in the commentary and whatnot, but. It was not. It was not in use. I don't think. Like it was from the fifties or something like that. Um, right, right, right. And it definitely yeah. doesn't look like a even a modern hospital of nineteen eighty one. Yeah, yeah there, there's an old fashioned feel to this. But I, again, it's a country hospital kind of a situation. But uh, our promiscuous nurse and what's this character's name? The the hot one. Um, Kara, or yeah. what do you mean the hot one? Who's the hot one? Like the Tawny's character, the yeah. one who gets drowned. The, Kara. She's late. Kara. Kara. Okay. Yeah, she um, she looks really good in her nurse's outfit. Let's just put <laughs> that out there. And the movie gives her a nice introduction in that because uh, uh, Rosenthal has an affinity for like kind of cool symmetrical love shots. You know, he isn't afraid to put the camera on the floor and kind of get these long shots. And uh, when, when she comes into the hospital, it's framed nicely. I, I like how it's blocked. It looks cool. Would but, this be uh, a good time for me to get another beer? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sounds All good. Right. good. <laughs>